Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz podcast. I'm in First Kings chapter. No, I'm in Second Kings chapter one. This is the thing. This is why I have to check and make sure I say the right time for events because I say the wrong thing. I'm in Second Kings chapter one this morning. You know, I have a handful of relationship. It said First Kings. It was wrong. I am right. It is Second Kings. It's going to show up again, and it's going to be wrong, and I'm sure it, it's my fault. I'm, I apologize. Okay, I have some relationships in my life that require very little of me, like very, very little. Like, I have this lady, Donna, that's, she is an important part of my life because she does my taxes. And Donna, I love Donna because I only have to talk to her on the phone, and then I mail her some stuff, and then my taxes are done. And then I mail her a check after that. And it's, it is a perfect relationship. It is wonderful. I never, I have not once thought I should send Donna a birthday card. I don't know when her birthday is. And I have never been disappointed when I don't get a birthday card from Donna. I, this is, this sort of transactional relationship, it is it just makes my heart happy. She, she is there in Spokane doing the work that I need her to do, and, and there's just no expectations between us except for that, that April transaction. It is, it is wonderful. And I, I think when we as, as Americans think about friendship, I think sometimes we have transactional, transactional thoughts about friendship. It, or, or we in, I think the current state of friendship in the United States of America is to have very low expectations of friends, right? I have, I have fairly low expectations of a lot of my friends because, because first, I don't want them to have lots of expectations on me, right? Because I'm busy, I'm going to forget a birthday, I'm going to mess up, I'm going to, to miss following up when I should have followed up, but also because I don't want to be disappointed when a friend lets me down. And so I don't, I don't carry around a lot of expectations on, on many of my friends. I just sort of exist in, in relationship that, that doesn't, doesn't really have a lot of expectations. But it, this idea, this, this lack of expectation on one another has me thinking about, like, where, where does relationship really begin and end? Where does friendship begin and end? What happens when, when ex- expectations become so laxed that there, there isn't, relationship anymore. Because in my most important relationships, there are lots of expectations. Right? In, my, in my marriage, there is the expectation of fidelity and kindness and love. And my kids, they have all kinds of crazy expectations of me. They expect me to show up and pray and sing a song in their bedrooms almost every night of the year. I, I get paid to do that kind of stuff. They haven't once offered, you know? Like, they're getting it for free. Uh, I uh, start charging. I, I think it's, it's easy then in, in our world to, to start thinking about our religious life similar, in a similar way to the way we think about our friend life. Religiously speaking, we would like to have few expectations on God if that means that God will have few expectations on us. 
right? We, we like to live a, a religious life where maybe, just like Donna the accountant, every once in a while I have this thing I need from God, and so I go about transacting with God. So I'll pray really hard for about this one thing, and then, you know, I'll praise God when, when that one thing happens, but then we both walk away from that experience and go our own ways, and God and I, we continue this relationship of not having too many expectations on one another. But as believers, as, as Christian people, we really love to talk about the idea that our walk with God is a relationship. We aren't religious people. We are people in relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And so if that's the case, we, we have to think carefully about what it means to, to have a relationship that means something with, with our Lord. Today we're looking at a, at a passage where uh, someone in Scripture didn't want to have a lot of expectations on God and didn't want to have a lot of expectations placed on him from God and, and it, is, it is Ahaziah. We, last week, I've been looking through this summer at the stories of the life of Elijah. Last week, I looked at the story where Elijah told Ahab, who was the wicked king over Israel, this is the period of time when God's people had divided into two nations, north and south, and the northern kingdom of Israel was led by King Ahab, this wicked king. And Elijah the prophet had told Ahab that his days were numbered. And at the end of the book of 1 Kings, we read the story of, of Ahab going into battle dressed as a soldier. And someone randomly shoots an arrow at this guy that he thinks is a, a soldier, uh, a, a, the, the warring army, and, and it strikes Ahab and it kills him. And so Ahab's death... Um, it's, it's the type of death that fits with the idea of God deciding that Ahab's days are done. In Scripture, especially when we read the history in, that is presented in the books of First and Second Kings, we are reading the, the selected stories of God's work among his people. So these are not all of the stories that happen. This is not the, the complete telling of the reign of Ahab, king of Israel. These are the selected stories to remind us how God worked through history among his people. One of the ways God worked, we are to read then, as readers, we're attentive to this, and we understand one of the ways God's, God worked was that Ahab, for whatever reason, chose to go into battle dressed like a soldier, and for whatever reason, a random arrow strikes him dead. As readers, we understand God had a purpose behind this. And so we, we read the end of the story of Ahab, and then at the very, very end of the book of 1 Kings, the last three or four verses of 1 Kings, we read the story of his son Ahaziah. And there's a very brief, brief summary of the reign of Ahaziah, and basically Ahaziah is Ahab part two. He just does everything his father did. His father, he, he walks in the, in the wicked way that his father, his father works. And then there's a break between 1 and 2 Kings, and I, I am prepared to talk at length about the division between 1 and 2 Kings. Let it suffice to say, for, for the sake of your time this morning, let's just suffice to say this is not an original division. The book was originally one, and so there's no change in, in the content or the theme or the message 
between 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We, we, we could just read it without any break, uh, but for the sake of convenience, the book has been broken through history into two. So we get to 1 Kings, and we read about the story of Ahaziah. But 1 Kings begins with, with just a little bit of, of a reminder of where we've been. In 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we read, After King Ahab's death, the land of Moab rebelled against Israel. This introduction to the story reminds us that Ahab was a very powerful king. Moab was a people that had been, had been subdued and conquered by God's people clear back in the reign of King David, hundreds of years before Ahab came to the throne. They had, uh, that I have found in scripture, they have not rebelled since. There may have been a few, a few quietings down of Moab, but they have not rebelled like this since. They have been subject to God's people for hundreds of years. And so they chose this time, at the time of Ahab's death, a time that they would rebel, that they would try to gain their independence. Moab had been content to, to live under the, the subjection of God's people, under the, the rule of God's people for all these hundreds of years. And so it, it reminds us that Ahab was a very strong leader. He was a very strong military leader and very strong political leader. And when his son comes to the throne, the people of Moab, who had been, had been dependent underneath Israel for all these years, think, hmm, maybe now's the time. And so they look at, at Ahaziah, and they, uh, they think, maybe this is our chance. And this becomes a, a little bit of a theme, because later on in the book of 2 Kings, we'll read about the ongoing rebellion of Moab, but... Here it is, it's very possible that at this moment, Israel seemed vulnerable. And, and in that moment of vulnerability, King Ahaziah is king, and Ahaziah runs into trouble. And we read about it in verse 2, where it says, One day, Israel's new king, Ahaziah, he's still the new king, he's the new king, he fell through the lattice work of an upper room in his palace in Samaria and was seriously injured. So he sent messengers to the temple of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to ask whether he would recover. Ahaziah, he's got bad luck, right? But again, when we read the stories that are selected for the book of 2 Kings, we remember maybe God has a purpose behind somebody seeming bad luck. And, and so we, there, there's lots of speculation as to what the nature of his fall was. The, the construction in the ancient Near East would have meant that probably a flat-roofed house that had some living space on the, on the rooftop area, trying to take advantage of there might be some, some cooler breeze, might be away from animals that would be stored lower in the house, might be a nice place to be up on the roof, and then might have used like a latticework, like reeds woven together to, to help keep the bedrooms below or the rooms below not quite so hot. And so get some air circulating. So this is kind of a typical, typical setting where uh, a house would have living space up high and, and people down below, uh, some, some access to down below to, to keep ventilation moving. And, and so he, uh, he falls through from being up on the rooftop. He falls through and he's seriously injured. And, and Ahaziah, um, 
this, this bad luck, this random happening, maybe, maybe there's a deeper purpose. Because Ahaziah's wickedness and following in the footsteps of his father is exemplified by the very fact that as soon as he's injured, and he wants to know what the outcome is going to be of his injury, he, he goes to the god of Ekron, uh, Baal Zabub. And, and the, the Baals are a number of different gods that, that have the title Baal. They, they're just all these gods that were in the land of Canaan when, when God's people occupied the land after the Exodus. And honestly, there isn't a lot of information about Baal Zabub out there. Um, I, I, can't tell you, I can't tell you why uh, Ahaziah would have chosen to go, go to Ekron, to, to find out if he was going to recover or not. It's this kind of just strange. It's just sort of strange, honestly. He, he just went, he, it's almost like he picked a god at random and said, I'm just going to go, I just bail Zabub. Let's go to the, the god of Ekron. Can't be that bad, right? Ekron's a nice place. Ekron is a city quite a ways away from Samaria. Uh, there's just, there's no, no feasible feasible purpose. Like, I, I've, I've done this in my mind <laughs> this week. There's no, no clear answer as to why. Uh, but with, with Ekron being a long distance, it, it, seems, it seems strange to me that that's Ahaziah's choice as, as the god. So he sends, sends messengers to, to, that, to that god, and it turns out I'm not the only one who thinks it's weird because the messengers get interrupted on their way. And we read in verses 3 and 4, but the angel of the Lord told Elijah, who was from Tishbe, go and confront the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is there no God in Israel? Why are you going to Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, to ask whether the king will recover? Now, therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will surely die. So Elijah went to deliver the message. The Lord isn't particularly impressed by Ahaziah's decision to, to seek counsel from the God of Ekron. He's, he's not very interested in that. And, and so he sends Elijah to, to correct Ahaziah's messengers, to, to grab him in, in route. And the Lord doesn't just correct Ahaziah, he pronounces his judgment. He says, if, if this is the way you're going to treat me, if this is, if this is how you're going to, to view the God in Israel, then Ahaziah, you are done being king of, of Israel. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary that would always take names like Ahaziah and say he was Ahaz-been. Um, and so Ahaziah becomes Ahaz-been at this moment. He is, he is done. The, the title has been stripped from him. And, and we're left to, to believe that maybe the answer would have been different. Maybe Ahaziah had hope of, of recovering if he would have consulted the Lord, the God of Israel. But he chose, he chose to go to the God of Ekron. And, and Ahaziah's disobedience and, and unfaithfulness to God is contrasted with Elijah's immediate obedience. Uh, I, I highlighted last week, we, we don't get a report of the interaction between Elijah and the messengers because 
we're just assured that it's going to happen. This is a command from God to one of his most reliable servants. And so when Elijah hears the word of the Lord, Elijah goes and does the word of the Lord. We are assured of it also because we hear the report of what happened after Elijah went and confronted Ahaziah's messengers in Second Kings 1 verses 5 through 8. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you returned so soon? They replied, A man came to us and told us to go back to the king and give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Is there no God in Israel? Why are you sending men to Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to ask whether you will recover? Therefore, because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will surely die. What sort of man was he? The king demanded. What did he look like? They replied, He was a hairy man, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Elijah from Tishbe, the king exclaimed. Now, <laughs> messengers from the king sent to Ekron are interrupted by Elijah on the way. This is really interesting to me that messengers sent from the king would, would come into contact with Elijah and then instead of continuing on their message, uh, on, their, on their errand, when they get bad news to return to the king with, they decide, just oh, let's just take this bad news back to the king. They, they don't go on. You know, if, if I was sent to the grocery store for, for avocados for my wife, and my neighbor encountered me in, in the driveway and said, there's no avocados at Winco. And in fact, there's no avocados anywhere in town. I wouldn't take that bad news back to my wife. I would go personally, this is just my own personal take on delivering bad news, I would, I would put it off and go and look high and low for avocados because who wants to tell, it, tell anybody at home there's no guacamole for dinner, right? So these messengers, they, they hear the word from the prophet and apparently, Elijah is so authoritative, he is so convincing, that the messengers, they don't even bother continuing on to Ekron where they were headed. And they, they just go immediately back to the king to tell him, and they tell him word for word what Elijah said. They, they tell him, this is bad news, buddy. This is really, really bad news. And, and Ahaziah, he knows that Nobody gives him bad news without and, and gets away with it, right? Nobody gives him bad news and, and gets off scot-free. And so he wants to know, who was it that turned you around with this bad news? And, and they describe Elijah. Now, I, I think this is the only spot where Elijah's appearance is described in, in First and Second Kings. In, and uh, Elijah's appearance is, he's, he's hairy, and he has a leather belt around his waist. And, and the hairy thing, uh, some people think that it means he had long hair. Some people think it means that he had like lots of body hair. And, and apparently he was dressed in a way that you could tell that he had lots of body hair. Uh, this, this descriptor, though, is, you know, maybe it's just neither here nor there, but it is interesting with a connection to the New Testament. Because in the, in the New Testament, the New Testament begins with the message of John the Baptist. 
And, and John the Baptist is described as a man who wore a, a coat or a cloak woven out of camel's hair. And he put a leather belt around his waist. And so this, this is one of those interesting connections between Old and New Testament where, where the, in, the, in the beginning of the New Testament, before Jesus came, there, there was a belief and an understanding that Elijah himself would return to earth before the Messiah would appear. And so it, it, it happens that Jesus even tells his disciples in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells his disciples that, that Elijah, that John the Baptist was Elijah. And, and so this is one of those points where, where you just kind of, you just make a little mental note and, and you see that interesting connection between Old and New Testament. Well, back to Second Kings, though, is uh, Ahaziah, as soon as he hears the description of Elijah's physical presence, he knows who it is. That guy from Tishbe, he's just, he's just so fired up and so angry. And, uh, and again, he, he's not going to let anybody give him bad news and get away with it. And so we read what he does in, in verses 9 through 12. Then he sent an army captain with 50 soldiers to arrest him. They found him sitting on the top of a hill. The captain said to him, Man of God, the king has commanded you to come down with us. But Elijah replied to the captain, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and killed them all. Verse 11. So the king sent another captain with 50 men. The captain said to him, Man of God, the king demands that you come down at once. Elijah replied, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you and your 50 men. And again, the fire of God fell from heaven and killed them all. Elijah sets the pecking order here, right? Elijah, Elijah reminds these soldiers and their captain, and the king. Who's the authority here? Who has the power? Uh, because one man on God's side is always more powerful than a nation with armies. One man with God always wins. And, and the odds are not in Elijah's favor, right? If we were, if we were betting... And, and there was a fight to break out between 51 dudes and Elijah, uh, we would get really good odds on Elijah. Like, the, the, anybody would make the, the army hands-down favorite. There is no question between, between 50 soldiers and a captain, there's no question. Elijah is done for with numbers like that. And, and, the, even though there's no contest in terms of human strength, with God's favor on Elijah, it makes Elijah a very dangerous man for anyone who is going to stand against God's purpose. Um, let, me, let me just remind you. Let me just say that there is an enemy of your soul. Your soul has an enemy. I, I'm not a person who is, is looking for spirits under every bush. I'm not, I'm not a person who, who talks a lot about, about spiritual warfare. But Scripture is very clear. Scripture is very clear that, 
your soul has an enemy. And the enemy of your soul wants nothing more than to separate you and God. The enemy of your soul wants nothing more than to convince you that your sin is no big deal. It wants nothing more than for you to think that intimacy with God doesn't really matter. It wants nothing more than for you to believe that you can live in any way you want and there is no consequence. And you do not intimidate the enemy of your soul. You, by yourself, are much weaker than the enemy of your soul. And, and the enemy of your soul has a long line of victories that give him all the more confidence when he looks down at you. This passage reminds us that when we walk closely with God, we all of a sudden become very dangerous for anyone who would stand against God's purpose. We all of a sudden become, become people who the enemy of our soul looks at and says, eh, maybe I'll go on to an easier target. If, if we are willing to walk closely with our God, us and our God, the odds suddenly become pretty good in our favor. The, so the dangerous Elijah, uh, he has army after army sent after him. And finally, when it's the third army, he hears a word and, and there's a different outcome. We read in verses 13 through 15. Once more, the king sent a third captain with 50 men. But this time, the captain went up the hill and fell on his knees before Elijah. He pleaded with him, Oh, man of God, please spare my life and the lives of these, your 50 servants. See how the fire from heaven came down and destroyed the first two groups, but now please spare my life. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went with him to the king. Uh, since we're making quick connections between this story and New Testament stories. This story reminds us just, just slightly of the story of Jesus' arrest. There, there's a uh, recording of Jesus' arrest. I think it's the John uh, story where, where Jesus comes, is, is in the garden with his disciples praying. The army comes into the garden to look for him. And Jesus says, uh, who are you looking for? Who, who was it that you were looking for again? And, and they say... Um, I think it's uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And they all fall back, like to the ground. Uh, and, and in that story, it, it only happens once, but, but Jesus sets the pecking order. Jesus reminds these men who have come into the garden armed with, you know, torches, come to arrest an unarmed man, man, the unarmed Jesus reminds them of the pecking order. He says, I am he. And then Jesus humbly allows himself to be arrested for us, for you and me. Um, in, in, in this instance, Elijah hears, hears from the angel of the Lord and he allows himself to be arrested. He, he is assured that nothing is going to happen. It's okay, Elijah. Just, just go with it. Just go with it. It's okay. And so he, he goes, and, and 
Elijah goes from being arrested by 50 men, uh, and then like the very next verse, he is suddenly in the bedroom of King Ahaziah. We read in verses 16 through 18. Then Elijah said to the king, this is what the Lord says. Why did you send messengers to Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to ask whether you will recover? Is there no god in Israel to answer your question? Therefore, because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on and will surely die. So Ahaziah died, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Since Ahaziah did not have a son to succeed him, his brother Joram became the next king. This took place in the second year of the reign of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The rest of the events of Ahaziah's reign are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. God's judgment on, on Ahaziah is obvious as he dies, right? There's just no question that that was God's, God saying, no more Ahaziah. And Elijah has convinced us um, that maybe, maybe he could have survived had he gone to, to God, the Lord. Uh, but he, he was unwilling. He was unwilling. He was so lost in his idolatry. He was so lost in, in believing uh, that there wasn't help coming from the Lord, the God of Israel. So he needed to go somewhere else to find help. And, and so he dies. He dies um, two years into his reign. We understand he, he was king for two years. And he's gone. And his brother comes and, and takes his place. And that is Kings, Second Kings 1. I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs> there's, there's two applications that might come out of this. There's, uh, there's the Elijah application. This, this idea that God's power always, always triumphs. Um, Elijah, Elijah points to the reality that one man on God's side is more powerful than, than armies and nations and anything that would stand against God's purpose. We don't always see that in practical application every day in our world, but we know that ultimately it is true, that ultimately God's purpose will prevail in this world. That ultimately, God has said, I'm not done, and one day God will say, I'm coming to finish. When every time we celebrate communion, we, we say, this is a reminder that Jesus has not finished his work, but he will come again and set everything right. And so we believe that even though it may not look like it, even though it may look like 50 armed men against one unarmed person sitting on a hilltop, God's purpose always prevails. And God's power is always great enough to accomplish God's will. So there's the, the Elijah application, but there's also the Ahaziah application. This, this passage returns to the themes about idolatry that we looked at a lot early on in, in the stories of Elijah's life. Ahab was so steeped in it, and Jezebel, and we had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, and there was this constant turning away from the God of Israel to other gods, other things that might be able to accomplish what God should be able to do for his people and had promised to do for his people. But for whatever reason, 
God's people chose to walk toward the false gods and the idols and, and walk away from the Lord because they thought that the Lord wasn't going to come through, that the Lord wasn't going to be faithful, or that the Lord wasn't as powerful as all of these other gods in, in their surroundings. But this, uh, this is a passage that, that reminds us that God has expectations of those who would call themselves his people. God expects us to draw near to him and to ask him when, when we need something. God is offended. The, the three times it's repeated in this, is there no God in Israel? God is offended that, that Ahaziah would look elsewhere for what God has promised to be for his people. God has promised to be a healer for his people. And, and Ahaziah says, I think I'll just go somewhere else. You and I, we are not as tempted by other religious options in our world. I mean, there are other religious options in our world, and there are, there are plenty of them, right? And, in, and our world is getting smaller all the time, and so there are more and more other religious options in, in our world today than ever before. But honestly, you and I are not particularly tempted to go to an, another form of worship. You, you and I are, are not particularly tempted to, to find another God and, and begin to, to set up a, an image of that kind of God in our homes or, or to worship another way. And, and so trusting other gods doesn't, doesn't look like sending a messenger to another God. But we have our own ways. <laughs> we have our own ways of, of putting things in the place of God in our lives. We have our own ways of, of looking to things that are not God for the things that God jealously wants us to expect from him. And, and so in our world, it looks like the things that keep us comfortable and, and happy. It looks like, you know, that nest egg that we have saved. It looks like the, um, you know, the entertainment that, that we choose to, to have fill our lives with purpose and meaning. It, it looks, like, it looks like all kinds of things that, that aren't God that we go to in, in times of trouble, all kinds of things that aren't God that we go to and, and trust in when, when we don't know the answer. We, we have all kinds of things in our lives that, that we turn to as, as that's the thing that's going to bail me out if ever I need to be bailed out. And, and those things are, are not God. And, and I don't think that God wants you to, to give away all your money. I don't think. Um, I, don't, I don't think that God wants you to, to, to move out of your house. I, I don't think that God has, has a problem with us having some of the conventions of our, of our culture and of our world. But I, I think we, we forget that we are, we are not religious people. We are people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ desires a relationship with us that is intimate and close and, and daily and, and is a part of the fabric of our being. That, that is the type of, of relationship that Jesus wants with us. It, the Lord is glad that you are here to worship. <clears throat> on Sunday morning. That is part of 
of being a Christian person. But the, but the Lord wants you to wake up on Monday morning and say, good morning, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for a new day. The Lord wants you to go to bed on Monday evening and, and say, Lord, here I am, watch over me as I sleep. The Lord wants to be the one that you turn to when you get a bad report from a doctor. The Lord wants to be the one that you, you turn to when, when the ends don't quite meet together financially. The Lord wants to be the one that you turn to when, when your kids are making choices that you don't know how to help them through. The Lord wants to be the one that you turn to in every circumstance. In fact, God expects it. And God is offended. God is offended when we turn to all kinds of things that are not God first. So Ahaziah heard, what, is there no God in Israel? The, the Lord, I think, so often sees us react and says, what, am I not right here next to you? Am I not closer than your very breath? Why are you looking anywhere other than to me? And so this morning, I just invite you to maybe take stock as we pray and consider what, what are those things that tempt you to, to look to things that aren't, aren't our Lord when our Lord is offered to be as, as close as our very breath? What are those things that you, you look to that aren't God when, when times are, are difficult? And maybe to, to just resolve in your heart this morning that your intimacy with God is, is going, to be, it's going to be first and foremost so that you can just by instinct turn to God in, in any moment. Will you let me pray for you? Why don't you stand and, and let me pray for you? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your presence that is always with us. God, we don't have to wonder about your faithfulness because you are faithful always. You are good always. You are with us always. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to question. We don't have to worry that maybe you won't come through, God. But Lord, we confess that in spite of the, that we know that cognitively, that we know it in our minds, often our hearts are tempted to turn to things around us. Our hearts are tempted to, to grab on to all kinds of things that aren't you and to believe that those things are going to pull us through a crisis, to believe that those things are, are going to, to help us in a time of trouble, to believe that those things are the things that are really going to make us happy in this life and content. And Lord, we, we confess that and, and, and we see a few of those in our, in our lives and we give them over to you, God. We ask, God, that you would take them. We ask that you would shape us by the power of your Spirit so that our instinct would be to look first and foremost to you. We know that it, 
that that instinct will only be formed if we cultivate a habit of coming to you in the good times and in the difficult. And so, Lord, here we are today. Here we are, Lord, in your presence. Help us, God, to to continue to seek your presence as we go into this week. Tonight when we lay down, Lord, may we recognize your love and goodness that's with us. Tomorrow when we wake up, may we give the day to you, give you thanks for what you have done. May our conversation with you be constant. May our trust in you be built each day. This is a big week in in the life of many of our folks, Lord. New school year's beginning. We pray, Lord, that that as this, this time of transition comes into our homes and into our lives, into the lives of teachers and students, Lord, I pray that you, you would remind each of us often of your presence that's with us and of your desire to carry us through. Remind us of your wish, Lord, your wish that we, we would first turn to you before anything else. We believe that by the power of your spirit, you can, you can make us people that seek you first above all things, God. And so we depend on you, Lord. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. As, as you're getting ready to go, remember, next Sunday, go to Pioneer Park at 9. God bless you. You are dismissed.